My friends, I can't ask you to go any further. Dr. McCoy and I have to do this. The rest of you do not. Admiral, we're losing precious time. What course, please, Admiral? Mr. Scott? I'd be grateful, Admiral, if you'd give the word. Gentlemen, may the wind be at our backs. Stations, please. Spock is dead. Or is he? Admiral Kirk is on a mission to find his friend, who may have been brought back to life. Join us as we talk about the measured response to a yellow alert, the logic of Vulcan mysticism, and the many words that James and I define differently. Then we find out if Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time. My name is Alan Noah, and you there, your name is James Brief. Just in case you forgot, did you forget your name? No, I didn't forget my name. It's James Brief. How are you, Al? I am well, thank you. And here we are going to talk about another Star Trek movie. The second of three this time, to be followed by another Star Trek film in the future. Maybe. Nope, you promised. I promise lots of things. You'll forget. But enough about that. There's something I did want to talk about. Have you been hearing in the news about these astronomical prices that people are paying for original sealed box video games? Yeah, I have seen that pop up in uh, my Google News feed once or twice. It's kind of crazy. I guess it's sort of like that thing where people want to spend a lot of money on like unopened toys and you know they're worth more when they're mint in the box but it's still kind of weird with a toy because then you can't play with the toy but i guess you could put it on a shelf and it looks kind of cool with a video game in a box what's the point yeah and you know even with this uh recent super mario brothers copy that sold for like two million dollars and there was this other copy of super mario 64 for over a million almost a million for a legend of zelda copy I agree with you. It's just kind of weird because it's not like it's an action figure, I guess. That, to me, does seem a little odd. But, you know, I guess the action figure is a piece of art. It's just that the Super Mario Brothers thing, it's so widely distributed that so many people have a beat-up version of this that I just find it really weird that people are paying so much for something that is otherwise very widespread. It's not like it's one of these uh, Honus Wagner cars. That's the most rare baseball card ever because there's only like, you know, three in existence. That would be like one of these, uh, you know, incredibly popular cars from like the 90s, you know, some Ken Griffey Jr. card that had like 20 million prints, but most of them are kind of a little creased and this one is perfect, but there's so many of them. I love the game. I, un- I understand, of course, what it means in the w- history of video games, but I'm just not quite understanding what the point of displaying that, since it almost seems like anyone could do that. 
Yeah, it is very weird. I mean, when you think about it, it's kind of like these people are paying for the plastic wrapping on the box, right? Because if you had a Super Mario Brothers cartridge that's used and it's in the box and it comes with all the manuals and everything, that would be worth probably, you know, more than $50, I would guess, but not a million dollars. So the difference is that it's just new and shrink-wrapped? No, even worse. One of these copies of these Super Mario Brothers games, it's actually not that it's sealed and shrink-wrapped. It's that it has this black sticker, which is very definitive because it's not even one of the Super Mario Brothers copies that you or I could have bought in 1985. It was one of the test-run things that were sent out to, like, Toys R Us's around the country. And there's, like, only one that survived of those that are sealed. And it's one of those, like, okay, I guess when I know the story behind it, but it's basically like, you know, it's framing a pencil that looks identical to every other pencil that was ever made. And you're like, this was once held by John F. Kennedy. Okay, I get it. I get the story. I'm just not getting why it's that special. Right. I mean, it kind of makes me think of those non-fungible tokens that like people spend millions of dollars on for like zeros and ones that like you can say you have it but what's the point and i don't know maybe i just sound like a a luddite or a poor person who just doesn't have millions of dollars to throw at these things but like i just don't get it if i suddenly become rich tomorrow there are things i will buy that maybe could be considered collector's items but it wouldn't be a non-fungible token, and it definitely wouldn't be a video game that I can't play. Yeah, I would never buy one of those NFTs unless, of course, I had the option to own any one of 200 or something episodes of the Test of Time podcast, which, of course, you can buy as an NFT for a minimum bit of $10,000 each. You're, you're not talking about those, right, Al? No, all of our episodes are widely distributed for free, and they are very much fungible. But you can buy as an NFT any one of these episodes for a minimum of $10,000, right, Al? No. If there's copies of it, then it's fungible. Um, I just think there's better ways to spend your money if you're a millionaire. Uh, if you are a millionaire and you've got millions of dollars that you just don't know what to do with, write to us at Test of Time Pod, and I will help you think of some things that you can spend your money on. Mostly it's going to be buying me stuff. Uh, but let's talk about Star Trek Three: colon, The Search for Spock, which picks up after Star Trek II, colon, The Wrath of Khan. Yeah, and in this film, following the death of Spock from Star Trek II, uh, Kirk and his crew, they return to Earth. Kirk learns more about the Genesis device, while Dr. McCoy begins having some strange episodes. But meanwhile, on the Genesis planet, the body of Spock has somehow resurrected. And as this is happening, a Klingon named Kruge, he learns about the Genesis device, and he decides to take it for himself. Now, Kirk has to race to prevent the galaxy's greatest weapon from falling into the wrong hands. And at the same time, he's got to go and save his friend Spock. Except that Spock is dead. Well, he was dead and then shot to a planet that is Genesising. Is that a verb? I'm making it a verb. Oh, good for you. All right, so I'm going to guess that this movie did pretty well at the box office. 
because Star Trek 2 did well at the box office, and after Star Trek 3, there were another 19 sequels. Well, there were a total of six episodes from the old series, and this one did very well, you're correct. Uh, it opened at number one on June 1st, 1984, with $16.6 million, on its way to $76 million. So it was not as successful as Star Trek II, but it was still successful on its own. Okay, and once again, we have uh, the entire crew coming back. We have uh, James Horner. He's once again uh, scoring this. And we have someone else at the helm of this movie. We have Leonard Nimoy. He is now not only Spock, but he's also the director of this film. And Leonard Nimoy only acts as Spock in this movie for like, I don't know, 10 seconds he's on screen. I mean, it's a very short role. I mean, as director, he has way more to do than as an actor We actually saw another movie that Leonard Nimoy directed on the podcast a long time ago. Do you remember? Oh, of course I do. Three Men and a Baby. That's right. That's right. Yeah, he was a very successful director in the mid-80s. And these are probably his three most successful films. uh, Three Men and a Baby, this film, and the sequel to this, Star Trek IV, colon, The Voyage Home. And this film takes place as a direct sequel, literally right after the events of the previous film. And Spock is dead, and Kirk is now discussing this with Starfleet, presumably, you know, he's debriefing him on the mission and what happened with Khan. And he's told not to discuss Genesis at all. It's top secret. And he's also told that Enterprise, the, uh, the ship, it's going to be decommissioned. Sad. I guess. That is sad. And returning to the crew from the uh, previous movie is uh, Lieutenant Savick. And in the last film, it was played by Kirstie Alley. And this film, it's played by an actress, Robin Curtis, who reprises a role in Star Trek IV. Right. I mean, she kind of looks a little Kirstie Alley-like, I guess. Um, but I was surprised that they couldn't get Kirstie Alley to come back. Yeah, I was wondering what Kirstie Alley was doing in, you know, when this was filmed in 1983, because I think Cheers might have been on the air. Maybe it was, but uh, even if it was, she was not in the show until like the third or fourth season. I saw something that said she didn't come back because she didn't want to be typecast, which, okay, there are some actors who refuse to do sequels, although Kirstie Alley did go on to do three Look Who's Talking movies. So I don't know if that's a hard and fast rule about no sequels for her. Yeah, but those are totally different films. One's a boy baby talking. The other's a girl baby talking. But then there's dogs talking. Yeah, yeah. Um, So the villain in this movie is Kruge. Is that right? Uh, yeah, they, uh, let, let's go with Kruge. Sure. I'm asking you how to pronounce something. What's wrong with me? Uh, but it's played by Christopher Lloyd. And in the credits, it says introducing Christopher Lloyd. But Christopher Lloyd had been doing stuff like long before this. I think it's a joke. Um, in Ocean's Eleven, they do say, and introducing Julia Roberts. And, you know, that's kind of a joke. I think that's what they're doing here. Because Christopher Lloyd's a big actor. I don't know. That's not a very funny joke. I mean, I know he did Taxi, and he was a well-known actor. I have no idea why they did it. It's uh, it's not funny, I agree with you. Maybe because they did introducing Kirstie Alley last time. I guess. Uh, but so he is a Klingon, and Klingons are... Bad, I guess? Well, uh, at this point in the Star Trek universe, uh, Klingons and the Federation are at war. In Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, uh, we will find that they're trying to make a peace treaty. Neat. Okay. There is some, like, passing line in Star Trek II where they say something about Klingons don't take prisoners or something like that. So I just assume that they were all bad. 
Yeah, Klingons are very warlike. They got that kind of Spartan mentality. I mean, they, they can be good in Star Trek Next Generation. Worf is, uh, I mean, he's raised by humans, but uh, you know, he's a Klingon. He's definitely a good guy. And we meet this guy, Kruge, uh, and he has a Klingon bird of prey ship. And it really looks like, you know, a bird of prey. It's a really cool looking ship. And it also has a special function that it can go under cloak. It turns invisible. And the Federation never had these ships. And as part of their treaty, uh, the Federation is not allowed to have any cloaked ships eventually. And uh, only the Klingons and Romulans have them. I mean, am I supposed to know any of that stuff? Because no. I didn't know any of that from this movie. No, that's just me adding interesting Star Trek lore. I just want to make it interesting for the listeners. I think you and I have very different definitions of the word interesting. But sure, we'll go with that. But anyway, Cruz learns about the Genesis weapon, which we had uh, talked about last week in Star Trek II. And this is a weapon that it's supposed to fire on a uh, planet and create life. But when it's used in other ways, it could be a gigantic weapon that can kill all life. And possibly when you detonate it, it can create a planet, uh, I think. Apparently. Yeah, they keep talking about the Genesis planet like we know what that is. And we do kind of from Star Trek 2, but also kind of not really because we just know that Khan detonated the Genesis device and there's like some life growing somewhere. And I guess now they have just decided that it is this new planet and it is called Genesis. And okay, I guess we can just go with that. That's exactly what it is. It's go with it. And Bones, uh, Dr. McCoy, played by the late uh, DeForest Kelly, he's acting kind of weird. Because Bones, his character, he is very, very straight edge. Like, you know, damn Vulcan. Like, he's very curmudgeon and he's by the number. But he starts talking weird. And he's talking almost like a Vulcan. Right. So, apparently, before Spock died, he did a mind meld with Bones and transferred his... Katra or his spirit to Bones and now Bones has himself but also Spock in his head and that's why he's acting weird. Yeah, at the end of Star Trek 2, before uh, Spock goes into the, uh, the engine room and dies, he basically transfers his consciousness into uh, Bones without his knowledge. Or consent. Or consent. I guess you could say it is brain rape. Uh, you said that. I didn't say that. I mean, going into someone's brain without their consent. What else would you call it? I would call it a dick move. But it has nothing to do with the penis. Right. I would call it a jerk move. But it also had nothing to do with the penis. What? Oh, geez. It just wasn't nice. How about that? Yeah, it had nothing to do with the southern coast of France, but... Uh, That's nice. <laughs> it spelled nice. Oh, my God. Uh <laughs> So one of the things Bones says is he has a sudden urge to return to the Genesis planet. And Starfleet is telling the crew, you know, you got to ignore this. You, you, of course you can't take him there. So we go next to this bar scene. And this scene to me seems to be really inspired by 1977 Star Wars. Because to me, this is Star Trek's wacky and, you know, all kinds of crazy characters bar scene. A hundred percent. Not only is it filled with like random shots of like these crazy aliens everywhere, but also Bones is there looking for a ride, which is what they do in the Mos Eisley Cantina. It definitely felt like it was trying to replicate that scene. A hundred percent. Oh, absolutely. 
And uh, here, actually, Bones, he winds up being apprehended by Starfleet security. And the crew winds up kind of breaking into Starfleet jail. And they break him out. And they decide to steal the, hijack the Enterprise. And, you know, it's, it's just a skeleton crew of just the main cast. And Kirk has the whole thing of, like, look, I can't ask any of you guys to come. But the whole crew says, yeah, we're going to break Starfleet protocol. And we're going to go with you guys because we're going to save our buddy uh, Spock. Even though he's dead. Even though he's dead, but maybe he isn't. Right. When they're stealing the Enterprise, it's a yellow alert, which I guess makes sense that it wouldn't be a red alert because they're Starfleet people and they're taking a Starfleet ship. So it's bad, but it's not the worst thing in the world. But it just it sounds so anticlimactic when they're like, yellow alert, yellow alert. Red alert is uh, death is imminent. That's that's the difference. Okay, fine. But still, it's just like when they're saying it's a yellow alert, it's like, oh, I need to do stuff eventually. I should move fairly quickly. I should respond at a reasonable speed. But like, oh, my God, life or death. No, no, no. It's only a yellow alert. I'm holding a hot cup of coffee. I'm going to put this thing down slowly and put on slippers because I have to go all the way across the ship. Right. Exactly. It's a measured response to a yellow alert. Um, also, like, while they're leaving this space hangar or something, there are these space doors that are closing, and it's like, oh no, are the space doors going to close before they can get out? Let's hope that they make it through, but it's so slow. It's, like, painfully slow, like, watching the ship go through these very slow-moving space doors. It was painful. Um, it's... (laughs) It's not Star Wars. I know. Or Independence Day or anything fast-paced. I agree. I think it's probably just the limitation of basically the models that they could play with at the time. That's probably why it was so slow. Maybe. It could also just be that, well, the space doors wouldn't close that fast in real life. Going back to the whole hard, soft sci-fi thing we were talking about last week. I get it, but it's just not thrilling. And it really is slow. And we've only been talking about this movie for however many minutes, but it's like 45 minutes in the movie by the time that Kirk and the crew are heading into space to look for Spock. And I was like, well, the movie is called The Search for Spock. The main character doesn't start searching for Spock until like 45 minutes in. Like, what have we been doing all this time? And it's just a lot of like the exposition and the talking about Spock's spirit and where it is and uh and watching the Genesis crew like investigating the Genesis planet and it's just really really slow well yeah fine Uh, you, you make a valid point that it is slow but back on the Genesis planet we have David uh Kirk's son that we met in the last film and Savick they're there and they're studying the Genesis planet and this planet has basically rapidly formed into uh, an era in its history where it's habitable for life and it's full of lush forests and there was this coffin that was fired at the planet from the last movie. It was it was Spock's coffin, supposedly with his dead body. And they find the coffin because they're tracking something and they find the coffin is dun-dun-dun empty. Right. And then David basically explains that in the Genesis device, they used 
proto matter. And Savik's like, you did what? You're not supposed to use proto matter. That's not logical. I say logic a lot because I'm a Vulcan. And David says, yeah, but we had to get the experiment on track. So we had to do what we had to do. And it's sort of how they yada yada how all of this is happening, how it was able to bring Spock back to life. Why? Because proto matter. What's proto matter? Eh, proto matter. That's what did it. It's sort of your Jurassic Park moment when you find out, all right, we didn't really clone dinosaurs. We kind of cloned dinosaurs. And then we kind of put sex-changing frog DNA in there too. So the reason for this is it tells us why this planet is evolving at such a rapid rate. And the fact that it's habitable right now means that this planet is going to still continue to evolve and it's eventually going to go into its like destructive era eventually and self-destruct. So this is not a perfect device. Like We're not going to be able to populate the entire galaxy with endless habitable planets on every asteroid possible because it turns out that this device that was the dream device, it doesn't work. Right. Sad. Well, then the, the big reveal of the film, you're right, does not happen until halfway through a film called The Search for Spock. They weren't really searching for Spock, but they do find Spock. Right. And also, it's not... Kirk who finds Spock, it's David and Savik. And yeah, he's a kid and he is Spock, but he kind of isn't because he doesn't have his memories and he doesn't really speak. Although he does seem to understand when Savik speaks Vulcan to him, which doesn't really make sense because just because he is Vulcan, if he has no memories, he wouldn't understand the language. Yeah, that's a very good point. But meanwhile, above the surface of the planet, uh, Cruz, he's destroyed the Federation starship that uh, that David and Savick had come on, the science vessel, and everyone's dead everywhere, so they're kind of marooned on this planet along with uh, Child Spock, who's aging from Child Spock to bigger Child Spock to adolescent Spock, and eventually, when the planet evolves even more, he becomes Leonard Nimoy Spock. Is he ever Leonard Nimoy on the Genesis planet, or is that just only on Vulcan? I don't think you see him as Leonard Nimoy on Genesis. Oh, actually, isn't he Leonard Nimoy with like another, like a wig? Isn't that him? I don't know. No, I think it might be another actor. You're right. But uh, you do see in the credits that there's five actors credited as Spock. Yes. That's pretty cool. You and I have very different definitions of the word cool, but okay. Um, And there is this, uh, you know, eventually this confrontation between the Klingons and Enterprise and Kirk sort of suspects that they are in the presence of a cloaked ship, but he's not totally sure. And it's another very, very slow scene. It's a quote unquote battle, but not really. You know, they really drag it out. No, they don't. Do you ever play turn-based strategy games? No. For the same reason that I don't like Star Trek, I'm not a loser. (laughs) So, I mean, it's a turn-based strategy game. It's like Pokemon. It's like these kind of battle games. You do a shot, then the other one does a shot. It's like a submarine battle. That's just how it works. It's not an action pew, 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 explosion. It's not like that. (laughs) Okay, but anyway, Kirk winds up outsmarting the Klingons. They get the upper hand. They fire right on the Klingons as they decloak. But eventually, uh, bird of prey, they wind up, uh, they disable the Enterprise. 
Cruise demands the Genesis device. I forgot to mention that Cruise and his crew have now taken hostages on the surface. It's the three of them, uh, David Savick and Adolescent Spock. And he tells Kirk that unless you give me the uh, Genesis device and all of its secrets, that I'm going to start murdering hostages. And he actually just says, you know what, let's just murder one of them. And it's kind of a tense scene when the Klingon is just holding a real sharp knife to all three of their backs. I do like that uh, David the human is kind of totally scared to die. But the Vulcans are kind of like, whatever. They show no emotion. But David being, I guess, uh, in his redemption act, because he does say that because he faked the uh, Genesis uh, research with the protomatter, a lot of people have died because of this. So I think this is kind of his redemption. And Savick does point out, like, how many people have had to die for your uh, hubris? Who died? Everyone on the space station, everyone on their ship, basically anyone researching this Genesis device. It should have been known as a failed experiment. None of these people would be killed by anyone. I think that's a little bit of a leap. I understand what you're saying, but Khan would have wanted the Genesis device in two anyway. Khan killed all of the scientists on that, you know, lab space station. That's not on David. No, that's not on David. I'm saying Savik is saying that she's saying one of these but not for your uh, ambitions here. Because he was saying the only reason I use the protomatter is because it would have taken a generation or two for us to get there. He's not even saying we never would have gotten there without the protomatter. He doesn't want to wait 50 years for someone else to get it off, you know, his research. And she's saying, like, look, because you couldn't wait and because of your hubris, like, a lot of people died. Like, this thing was not meant to be made yet i understand what you're saying but who died who who are these people who died cruise destroys in a federation ship yeah because he's a warlord klingon that's not on david i think it's one of again we're arguing two different things we both agree he's not directly responsible with them but not for david's fake research or you know a fake thing that the federation should not have been studying that ship would not have been there that's all she's saying don't argue her logic that is her logic okay and she's a vulcan so she knows logic and she's actually a half vulcan a half romulan and that's actually not really explicitly said in this film it's in a deleted scene okay well that's still specious logic for me anyway it's david who dies david is killed by the klingon and this could be, should be, like a really powerful moment where Kirk loses his son, and it's not. Like, he just kind of yells, like, Damn, you bastard! You killed my son! And then that's it. It's not like a powerful thing for Kirk. It's not like a real journey that he just found out he had a kid and they barely got a chance to reconnect and then his kid is murdered and now he's like fueled by anger and vengeance and whatever. Like, nope. He yells, he mopes for like 10 seconds and then it's just on with the plot. I was very surprised by that. Just to let you know, William Shatner has won Emmys, He has won Golden Globes. I know there's a joke about his William Shatner kind of acting. He is a terrible singer. But I think this scene is, it's very William Shatner-esque. He's like, you Klingon 
bastard. You killed my son. I see what you mean. I don't think it's ridiculous. I think it's just very William Shatner-esque. And he's just doing his thing. I'm not even critiquing his acting in the scene. I'm saying that the movie itself does very little with this development of the death of Kirk's son. It is not a thing that really seems to affect the character throughout the rest of this movie. I think the entire David character of a father and son is wasted for both films. I I don't think the David character is very effective in what they wanted it to be. I think David could have very well been a scientist that's not related to Kirk, and the character really wouldn't change anything about Kirk. Yes, exactly. I totally agree. If you want to give Kirk a son and then kill the son, okay, sure. But then that should lead to an emotional journey for Kirk, and it doesn't. Right, and it's not like Kirk was in this boy's life for 30 years or so, and then this guy murders his son. That's one thing, but I don't think he knew of his existence uh, very much, or possibly, but... uh, Yeah. It's not like after the second film, they bonded so much that he joined the crew of the Enterprise. Now there's been, you know, time they've bonded. No, he seems to immediately have gone off to uh, this research vessel. So, you know, it's sad for him, but I agree with you there. So now we get to a definitive part of Star Trek history, and this is when Kirk, you know, he's completely defeated here, he's totally depressed, his son has been murdered, it seems that Cruz is going to win, and he says, we're not beaten yet, and they do something historic, and that is the destruction for the first time. It's the first time the Enterprise is destroyed. And it's not destroyed by an enemy. It's destroyed at the hands of Kirk. He basically set the trap for Kruge because Kruge is like, give me the Genesis device. And we're like, all right, it's here. Come get it. And Kruge's team, uh, they beam onto the Enterprise. And just as they beam on Kirk's team, they beam off. The uh, Enterprise was set to auto-destruct and Kruge's entire crew was killed. Well, basically like everyone but Kruge. So the destruction of the Enterprise was, what was the word you said? Uh, it's a definitive moment in the time uh, in the Star Trek timeline. I believe you used the word historic? In the Star Trek timeline, yes. It's a very definitive moment. You and I have very different definitions of the word historic. You and I have very different definitions of the, of the term historic in the, in the Star Trek narrative timeline. Really? What is your definition of that? There is none. Oh, okay. So you did not. You dislike this venture so much. You deny it exists. Uh, I don't think anything that happened in Star Trek is historic in any context. But Star Wars is? Totally. But Super Mario Bros. 2 isn't? Right. Okay. You you get it. Um. So Kirk blows up the Enterprise. They get down to this Genesis planet. It's like exploding and the planet is dying. And Kirk mourns his son for like... Four seconds on the planet. Uh, but then Kruge comes down to the planet and Kruge and Kirk fight. And I was saying last week how I kind of thought it was weird that Kirk and Khan never fight. But Kirk and Kruge do fight. God, there's a lot of K names in these movies. I just realized that as I was saying all that. Kirk and Khan and Kruge. Klingons. Klingons, sure. But uh, the Kirk versus Kruge fight is, I guess cool and actiony compared to most of the rest of this movie but kirk's one-liner when he kills cruise is god awful he is it is he's kicking him in the face like off of a cliff and he says i have had enough of you i mean 
that's like something I say to like my dogs when they're barking too much. Like, I've had enough of you. Like, this guy murdered his son. And that's his line. I have had enough of you. Come on. I agree. It's a terrible uh, action line when you're going to kill the bad guy. But he does. He kicks him into a pit of like magma or something. And Kirk is able to beam out the last second before the planet explodes. And the crew is saved. And they get to escape on a Klingon bird of prey. Cool. It is cool. Sure. You and I have very different definitions of the word cool. Uh, well, then the film is not over yet because now we have the epilogue or, you know, the, the final part, which is back on Vulcan. The planet is called Vulcan? Is that right? Yes. So people from the planet are called Vulcan and the planet is also Vulcan. Correct. Oh, like I would have thought the planet would be called Volca and the people who are from there are Vulcan. So have you ever heard of the planet Vulcan, like the theoretical planet Vulcan? No. It was thought of by real scientists, I mean like, you know, Renaissance era. There was a thought that there was an equal like twin Earth on the other side of the sun that's kind of revolved around the sun as our counterbalance. And that planet was called Vulcan. So they didn't make up the term. Okay. Uh, Vulcan does not exist, though. Not in our solar system. All right. So then they have this big ritual where they bring Spock back to life with bones, and they use all of this Vulcan mysticism, which, I have to say, none of this seems logical. This seems like there is faith and belief, and all of that's fine. I'm not saying anything negative about that. But it does seem to go counter to the whole, we Vulcans only believe in logic thing. Well, uh, the Vulcan um, race, they basically split like a million years ago. And Vulcans decided we're only going to think of logic. And their emotional counterparts became the Romulans. And mostly their emotions were anger and fear. But... What does that have to do with Vulcan mysticism? You know, Romulans don't really have that mysticism as as far as I know. But this is one of the reasons why I don't consider Star Trek to be hard sci-fi. Because it does have uh, things like this. They just kind of would define uh, Vulcan uh, stuff as telepathy of some sort. I don't want this to come off as like I'm being anti-religion. But like the thing that the Vulcans are saying that Spock's spirit left his body and went into Bones' body. Like, that is logical because that did happen. We have evidence to see that that happened. But when this mystic is performing this ritual and she's wearing these long robes and she's got these huge rings on her fingers, like, what is the logic of that? There is none. It's tradition and it's belief. And again, all of those things are fine. But logically, if she's going to perform whatever ceremony to move the spirit from Bones' body into Spock's body, logically, she should be wearing clothes that are comfortable and not wearing like 12 pound rings on every finger on her hand because that's just going to slow her down, right? Wouldn't that be the logical thing to do? Why are you such a hater, Al? Listen, in this movie and the last movie, they keep talking about, we Vulcans do logic, 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 logic. And then at the end, they're doing all of these things that have no logic. So yeah, it sticks out. It's not that it's not logic. It's, it, it's still logical. It's just not explained by hard science. Uh, stretch. That's a stretch. No, that's y- your definition of logic is, is flawed here. What is the logic of wearing a long robe and giant rings when you're performing the ceremony? What is the logic? Uh, Stop wardrobe shaming her. That's just her look. That's the fashion that she likes. There is no logic in fashion, James. 
Oh, there's only emotion. Yeah, I mean, come on. It's a stretch. You know I'm right. But Spock comes back to life because, of course, he does. There's a moment where they say to Bones, Oh, are you sure you want to do this? It's a very dangerous thing. You'll probably die. And then five seconds later, he's fine. He didn't die. It's okay. Everybody's fine. Everyone's back to normal. And then the movie ends with this really, really terrible text on screen that says, and the adventure continues. And then the movie ends. It's like, wait, the adventure continues now? Are you saying there's going to be a sequel? Is it like the thing that they used to do at the end of Bond movies of like, James Bond will return? It's kind of like that, except that they would usually do like in the credits. This is just like at the end of the movie before the credits. I thought that was really, really hacky. And I'll bet you said the same thing when Guardians of the Galaxy did it after the volume one and volume two. What? What did they do? They said the Guardians of the Galaxy will return. Yeah, in the credits. That's a different thing. That's different than putting that text on screen pre-credits. And it's not the Star Trek crew will return. It's and the adventure continues. Well, I guess it's a a play on writing the end because it's not the end. It's like now everyone's back and now let's get some good Star Trek on. To be continued, Star Trek 4, colon, the voyage home next week. But until we get there, I need to know, and I'm dying to find out, Al, does 1984 Star Trek 3, colon, the search for Spock, doesn't stand the test of time, Al? I'm just dying to find out your opinion. No, of course it doesn't. This movie has nothing going on. It is really, really bare bones. Bones? Uh, Also, why is the name of the doctor Bones? Or is that like not his name? That's a nickname? It's a nickname. It's Dr. McCoy. Oh, okay. On the show Bones, was that about someone whose real name was Bones? No, they studied Bones. Oh. It was based on a real uh, criminal pathologist. Oh, okay. I never watched it. But um, nothing happens in this movie. It's the search for Spock, but it's... Really not. Like, we know where Spock is. It's two, like, B-level characters that are looking for Spock for most of the movie. When Kirk finally goes looking for Spock, he finds him pretty easily because we know where he is. There's no stakes. There's no drama of will they be able to find him? Will they rescue him? Will they be able to put his spirit back in the body? We know that that's all going to happen. Cruz as a villain... I guess he's kind of cool, but also not really. Khan, I thought, was at least an interesting character. Kruj is not. He is paper thin. He's two-dimensional. He wants to get the device and be the bad guy and kill people just because there's really not any motivation. He's just super, super generic. And the interesting thing that happens story-wise, the death of Kirk's son, there's no weight to it. It Barely means anything to Kirk, so why should I care as a viewer? I found this movie to be tedious and slow and boring, and no, I do not think it stands the test of time. So now, James, why don't you tell me about how wrong I am and how great this movie really is? All right, Al, let me just, I could sum it up really, really quickly. All right, are you you ready? You ready for it, Al? Ready as I'll ever be. I actually agree with you in your in your review, except I'm just not as angry as you are. Aw. There's a thing that says that the odd Star Treks are bad and the even Star Treks are good. 
And I think for the old series, the original cast, the first six films, I think it really holds up. The first one, oh God, it's bad. The fifth one, basically, uh, Leonard Nimoy had a smashing success financially with Star Trek 3 and way better even with Star Trek 4. So guess who decided to direct Star Trek 5? Uh, not Leonard Nimoy? Yeah, and who would be really jealous of uh, Leonard Nimoy getting all of the attention, plus uh, Three Men and a Baby? William Shatner? That's right. William Shatner directed Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, which you have to admit, that's a good title for a film. Eh. <laughs> it's no The Wrath of Khan. It's not The Wrath of Khan, but it's better than The Undiscovered Country. I seriously thought it was about a country that discovered on Earth. I'm like, how did, would we not discover a country yet? But anyway, <laughs> uh, getting back to this one, I agree with all the flaws you're saying. It does not have a very good villain, which is the best part of Star Trek II, which is titled The Wrath of Khan. It doesn't have much searching for Spock, which is the title of this film. <laughs> and when they find him, I mean, these kids are just completely blank. And yeah, they write it into the story that they don't have any memories of Spock, but... It's like, who cares about these kids? Yeah. And he happens to, like, weirdly age up until just the age that we had last left him. There's a lot of weird things with that. Um, I don't think the uh, fights are very good. I said this last week and earlier today. I don't think that David's storyline is very good. I think that the death of David is a little more effective. I think that's one of the scenes for me that does work. The scene uh, right after uh, David's death. That scene works for me. And I like, once again, the uh, spaceship fights. I actually think they're fine. I think they're very Star Trek-like, but uh, overall, this film just kind of gets us to Star Trek Four, and it's just not well done. There's a really good storyline. This Genesis planet has a fantastic potential, and, you know, Spock kind of coming back to life with it is fine. It's just not done well, and they don't have a good villain. I think Christopher Lloyd acts perfectly fine. I think the makeup of the Klingons, I think the outfits are very good. And this look of the Klingons is very different than the look of the Klingons in the old series. You know, this makeup is fantastic, and this would define what Klingons look like for the rest of uh, Star Trek series. And they even make a joke about it, about why they didn't look like that in the 1960s series, and it's really because of budget, but... Overall, this film doesn't have much uh, going for it. And it's a weaker entry, it's trying to be a great film, and it's just like... Meh, not really that good. It's not as bad as you say, Al, but it's not a good film. So, Leonard Nimoy, the late Leonard Nimoy. Unfortunately, I did not like this uh, this film directed by you. But let's see what I think about next week's uh, Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. And let's also find out if Al will finally like a Star Trek film. Let's, let's find out together. You should find out too, dear listener. And the way that you'll find out is by hitting that subscribe button in your podcasting app if you haven't already, which you should have by now. But just in case you haven't, do it now. While you're at it, maybe you should write us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be a nice thing to do, right? Then you can make sure that you're following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at Test of Time Pod. You can like our messages. You can retweet our tweets. You can share our Facebook posts. You can do all of those things. Help us spread the word about the Test of Time. We appreciate it. We love hearing from you. We love it when our fans interact with us online. And we will see you next week for the conclusion to Star Trek Temper, Star Trek IV, colon, The Voyage Home. See you later, listeners. Bye, everyone.